Welcome to IASA's additional coverage podcast number two. I'm your host, Tim Hicks, and joining me for today's additional coverage is Carlin Schofield, who is the Vice President of Organizational Effectiveness and Employee Experience at J.P. Morgan Chase. Hi, thank you for having me, Tim. Glad to have you here. Today's topic is leading authentically. But before we get started, I would like to recognize the support received from IASA's member companies and volunteers. IASA is the voice of the insurance industry. If your company is not already a member, I encourage you to consider all the benefits that come with membership in IASA. Find out more at IASA.org. Okay, Carlin, let's get right into today's topic. Um, leading authentically, what do you think makes a perfect leader? Oh my gosh. <laughs> is this a trick question? Because there are no perfect leaders. <laughs> it is a trick question. <laughs> this is how you're starting me off, Tim, <laughs> with a trick. <laughs> In your educational webinars, you say that there is no such thing as a perfect leader. That's true. Why would you say that? Oh gosh, because there's no perfect human being, right? I mean, that I'm aware of at least. So I think the best that we can strive for is authentic and real and someone who's committed to constantly trying to do their best and be their best for the people around them. Where would you say the responsibility for authentic leadership lies? Is it in the day-to-day manager? Does it emanate from the C-suite? What do you think? I think it's everybody. And I say this a little bit when I'm talking to crowds, but I believe that all aspects of our life serve one another. And so everything I try to practice as a leader, a lot of the different disciplines and values I try to bring into my leadership style are also things I think about as a parent, as a friend, as somebody living in the world. So whether you're a manager or a supervisor or a CEO, or you're just a person, I think practicing the values and the disciplines that come with being a really great leader are going to serve you no matter where you are in life. You know, there's a there's a meme that circles the internet from time to time that um, uh, basically says people who feel appreciated will usually do more than is expected. Do you think that's true? Yes, I do. I do. I think that when people get a sense from their leader that the leader would do anything for them or would go above and beyond for them, they are more likely to go above and beyond for that leader and for that organization. And that's just human psychology. You know, it's actually proven that human beings are uncomfortable if they feel like they're not pulling their weight or if they feel like a relationship is one-sided, we will try to balance that relationship out. So I would be uncomfortable if someone were giving and giving and giving to me and I wasn't giving anything back. I would want to match that level of giving. Adam Grant, who is an organizational psychologist, talks about this. He talks about givers, takers, and matchers. Matchers are the majority of our of people. So those are people, like I said, who want to keep the scales even. They don't want to do too little, but they also don't want to be taken advantage of. That's where most people fall. So as a leader, if you give to your people and you show them that you're willing to do more for them, they'll be willing to do more for you most of the time. Most of the time. And uh, it, that's been my experience as well. Um, Carlin, tell me what you think makes a leader 
an effective leader? Well, I feel like effective leadership is such a huge topic. That's why there's a million books written on the subject. <laughs> mm -hmm. Seems like there's always a, a flavor of the day, pop culture of the moment kind of thing, right? Yeah, there's so many. Everybody's got, you know, the eight traits to an effective leader or this or that. But I'm trying to think about, honestly, like where it starts. And I really would say it starts with self-awareness. I think just, again, like anything in life, if you want to grow, you have to be able and be willing to see yourself clearly. That means being honest about the things that you don't do well, <laughs> the things that are difficult for you to do the motivations you might have behind what you're doing, the more we can understand ourselves, the more we can work on our opportunities and lean into our strengths and ask for help when we need it. Here's one for you. I wondered if you would describe for me what you think is the difference between a leader and a boss. It's almost to me, and I guess I relate a lot back to parenting because I'm very passionate about how we parent our children because I have two babies. And as any parent knows, they're the most precious thing in your life. And so I think I always relate things back to it because it's top of mind for me. But, you know, anyone can be a mother, like anyone can give birth and anybody can be a boss, right? You have to earn the respect of your children by the way that you show up. So you can be a mother, but you're not necessarily a parent. You're not necessarily a guide, a loving influence in their life. You have to earn that role, you know? Mm -hmm. And the same is true in terms of like a boss versus a leader. A boss may have been hired to do the job, but most likely you weren't hired by the people working for you, right? So you may have, you know, gotten the job, but it's a whole other thing to be considered a leader. A leader is something that you have to earn through your actions, the way that you treat people, your integrity, and how you show up. So, you know, a boss is just someone you report to in the phone book. A leader is someone who inspires you, who lifts you up, who guides you, who holds you accountable. So really, what do you think goes into making a great leader? Mm -hmm. um, I suppose you've worked for both a leader and a boss in your career? Um, you know, yes, I have. I've had some really difficult bosses and I've had some really fantastic role models as well. And I've also, I think most people are complicated and complex. So every boss I've had, I can think of really fantastic things about them, even the most difficult ones. And I can think of some things that of course, as an employee, I had a different perception or perspective of, or which may have been different. Um, when I think of folks that I have the most respect for, it's the people who expected a lot of me, but not more than they expected of themselves. Mm -hmm. It's people who were honest with me, who I knew had my back and would advocate for me. That's important. And not just when I was doing well, but when I made mistakes. You know, a leader that understands that we have to lift up and celebrate people when they do well. But when you make a mistake, you also have to be there to help them get back up on their feet and not point the finger at them or not throw them under the bus. So those types of leaders are the ones that I really had the most respect and connection and admiration for. I also had leaders that I would have said were more of a boss. There wasn't that same level of trust. Uh, I still learned from those people though. I think everyone in your life is there to teach you something, even if it's what you don't like or what you don't want to be or traits you don't want to emulate. And I definitely learned some of those things. Um, but even those people who had traits that I didn't necessarily agree with or I didn't have full trust, 
there's always something that they have to teach you. And even if that's a new level of understanding or trying to practice empathy when it's difficult, right? you know, those are always opportunities. And so um, I think leaders are people who you genuinely trust and who you have, you don't have to kind of hide parts of yourself or walk on eggshells around. And bosses are people that you don't have that trust and you're constantly spending energy instead of just doing your best work you're spending energy trying to read that person or trying not to upset that person or trying to hold your cards close to your chest because you don't know if you can trust them to be your authentic, vulnerable, and real self. I'm going to characterize a boss in a particular way, and then we'll work from there. I've worked for a boss in the past uh, where when you did a really great job, you did um, Mm -hmm. uh, everything that you needed to do, that was, well, that was just the expectation. Right. But... Uh, don't you dare do anything wrong because if you do, you will get annihilated. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I think that's what you're talking about here. All right. So let's pretend for a moment that I'm that boss mm-hmm. and I'm going through my own self-awareness journey. I'm figuring out that you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. Yeah. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to transform myself into being a more effective leader mm-hmm. and less like a boss. I was wondering, can you give me some steps that I can take along that path? Sure. I think first is giving yourself grace because I tend to like kind of fall on the other end of the spectrum, which is also kind of harmful in the fact that I always want to be liked. So I am a recovering people pleaser, which is hard to admit, (laughs) (laughs) but I definitely am. But that can also do more harm than good. There's actually an author that I will recommend to your audience. Her name is Kim Scott, and she wrote a book, Radical Candor. And it really helped me in my journey as a leader, because like we said at the top of the podcast, it's easy to be critical of of other leaders we've had, but it's harder to be self-critical and Mm self-reflective. And I am definitely far from perfect. So I have been on the people-pleasing end of things. And what happens there, and, and Kim Scott talks about this, is clarity is kind, And being honest with people is the kind thing to do, even when it's hard. So sometimes when you want to spare people's feelings or you want to be liked, you struggle to hold people accountable. And when you do that, that person inherently continues to be frustrated because there is a misalignment between what they're able to contribute or the value they're adding to the team and what what they want to do and what they're able to do. And that causes internal tension. And it's also the job of a leader, not just to be a champion for each individual, but to be a steward of the team dynamic. And so if you have someone on your team who is not able to perform for any number of reasons, and you aren't willing to, you know, do what needs to be done to help them find a better fit or give them the coaching that they need in order to do better, even if it's tough conversations, the team suffers because other people are now pulling that that person's weight and they start to feel frustrated or resentful of that. And so then you create dynamics within the team where now that person may be the object of their frustration and that's not fair to that person or the team. So I would say for me, a recovering people pleaser, I've had to work on, you know, Kim Scott talks about um, challenging directly and genuinely caring. I'm, I'm good at the genuinely caring piece, but sometimes I talk around the challenging directly piece. And so I try to get better about being direct and honest when I need to be. And also, but from a place where my intention is clear, 
that I have the best of intentions and I genuinely care about the person, even if they have a hard time hearing what it is I have to say. Now for that boss on the other end of the spectrum, which you originally asked about, and and I'm just saying what I do because I want to be fair. Um, But for a boss on the other end of the spectrum that maybe notices that like they're very quick to criticize or they're very quick to jump on someone when they do something wrong, it's the whole, we all have that instinct. Like nobody wants to look bad. No one wants to look bad. No one wants things to go wrong. And a lot of the things that we struggle with as leaders are things we struggled with from childhood. So in the ways we were raised, whether or not love was conditional or unconditional, when you made a mistake growing up, how were you treated? You know, a lot of folks, when they made mistakes, were heavily criticized or made to feel worthless or insecure. And if your worth is wrapped up in never making mistakes, when a mistake is made by you or someone on your team, you can't take ownership for that because if you did, it would mean you would feel those uncomfortable feelings of I'm worthless. I am bad. This is, I'm, a, I'm not a good leader. So in order to protect our egos, sometimes instead of admitting mistakes, we do everything we can not to, or to blame others. Or when someone else on our team makes a mistake, it's really tough to cover for that person when it wasn't even you that made the mistake, you know, because I mean? <laughs> then it's like, wait a minute, I really don't want to le- look bad. Um, and I really didn't do this. It was someone on my team. But you're going to build so much more trust and goodwill if you are able to, as the leader, if someone on my team makes a mistake, for example, I handle that internally. Nobody else outside of our team knows who made the mistake, unless it's obvious and people can tell. But if only we know, no one else is going to know. I'm going to have a separate conversation with that person. Nine times out of 10, they already know what they did wrong. And they know what they, all, all you have to make sure of is that they know what they've done and they have a plan to fix it. That's it. That's resiliency. If you add shame, blame, all of that pain on top of that experience, all it does is distract them from coming up with problem solving solutions that are going to help not have the error in the next, in the next time around. And you're going to ding their confidence. You're going to, they're going to be ruminating rather than problem solving. And they're going to be spending all kinds of energy that's unproductive rather than when they know if they mess up, their boss has their back. They know that they can come up with a plan to fix it and they can move on. The quicker they can put that in the past, the more productive they're able to be. If they're holding on to mistakes they made and they're still working it in their head and they're working through difficult emotions, that's going to take them longer and throw them off from the job they're supposed to be doing. So even if you were just concerned about productivity, you would do your best not to encourage rumination in an individual, but instead encourage resiliency, which is the ability to bounce back quicker. How do you think people bounce back if they have a boss who, you know, criticizes them and makes them feel terrible when a mistake is made, that it makes their ability to bounce back that much harder. It makes them afraid to do anything, right? Right. It it inhibits their creativity. And in today's knowledge economy, where so much of our work is innovation and creatively based, a lot of our, our jobs, and even some that weren't traditionally thought to be creative, if you have a creative, innovative person in that role can come up and see gaps and see connections between things that can improve processes and systems in big and small ways. If you are scared, it, in, it inhibits parts of the brain. You're in your fight or flight. You're in older parts of the brain. It inhibits the parts of the brain that are creative. 
that need space and need to feel safe in order to function. So if you're the kind of leader where your people are scared all the time to make mistakes, they are not going to be very creative and you're not going to be very innovative. Right. If you're always feeling the need to CYA to cover yourself, you're not going to be doing your best work because you're always looking over your shoulder. Yeah. You know, there's, there's two thoughts I had about that. You know, there's a good way and a bad way to couch that feedback if something's gone wrong. Exactly. Now, if it's just the occasional, oh, you know, I messed something up, I, I fat-fingered a number or something, we're not talking about a big mistake here. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to be able to couch that feedback, you know, for your staff member in such a way that it creates a positive learning opportunity from a potentially negative situation. Right. I think that encourages them to not only be resilient, but be, you know, proactive problem solvers in the future. And the other thing that I was thinking about, and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, you're really not doing anybody any favors by not addressing a problem. Mm-hmm. You're not helping your staff member learn. You're not helping yourself solve a problem. And you're not helping the rest of your staff uh, when they see that you're not willing to address a problem when it happens. I want to touch a little bit on what you said about positivity, too, because um, that's another thing, you know, on my strengths finder. And this is I'm using myself as an example for, um, you know, opportunities to improve. Um, but on my strengths finder, my one of my top five strengths is positivity. And that's a really fantastic trait in a lot of ways if it's exercised in a healthy way. But there's also I'm sure, you know, a lot of folks have read about toxic positivity which is, you know, keep a smile on your face no matter what, not acknowledging when things go wrong or when things are difficult or when people have uncomfortable emotions, making people feel like they shouldn't or they need to always, you know, sing zippity-doo-dah when things actually feel really crappy at times. Right. And so one of the things, again, I've had to learn is this difference between bounded optimism and toxic positivity. And toxic positivity is what I just described. Bounded optimism is I can acknowledge, like if we made a big mistake, if my team makes a big mistake, I can acknowledge that sucked. (laughs) We can acknowledge the impact. We can acknowledge, oh, that feels, oh man, let's just feel that one. Okay. That, that, that hurts. What are the, then, then we can go into bounded optimism is acknowledging it, not being like, it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. But being like, yeah, that sucks. Let's feel it. Let's, let's see what the impacts are. But once we see what the impacts are, bounded optimism says, yes, you acknowledge the reality, the feeling that you have when you mess up really badly, but you focus on what you can do. And that is, again, that resilience. So when you, for example, your team makes a big mistake, instead of just like, you know, shoving it under the rug or acting like it's fine, no big deal. You acknowledge the magnitude of it. You acknowledge that's, oh man, that hurts. Okay. What's the impact? Where do we need to remediate? What can we make right how do we make it right? Let's not go into reactive mode, you know, which is sometimes, you know, when you make a mistake, you're scrambling like, oh my God, okay, what do we do? But calming down. And part of that is allowing people to feel how they feel, getting it out in the open and then saying, okay, what's the impact? What are, what do we need to do next? What's the next right thing to do? Right. And that, that's the one piece that I would add is, is the prevention the, yeah. the, the, the forward thinking prevention to keep a mistake like that from ever happening again. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and what, can you make anything right about what the mistake was made? Is there any kind of apology or acknowledgement or anything you need to do? And then what can you put in place going forward? And then, and then that's it. And if you're all in it together, it's a lot better than blaming one person and telling them you better fix this. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where you're going to get that reactivity and that panic right? versus a calm, cool head to address whatever it is. Like we were saying before, it's all in the way that you couch the conversation. Yeah. If you approach it with the uh, the positive approach of acknowledging the problem, yes, uh, taking the action to resolve the problem, mm-hmm. uh, and then finally preventing the problem from happening in the future, uh, then it winds up being a positive learning experience. Yeah. Well, that's about all the time that we have for today's podcast. Okay. Thank you so much, Carlin, for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us. Sure. Carlin, if any of our listeners should want to reach out to you, what's the best way yeah. for them to do that? Is there an email address or is there a better way to reach out to you? Yeah, well, I would love to hear from anyone. I'm on LinkedIn. I believe I'm out there as Carlin Schofield. <laughs> Sometimes I go by Carlin Lynch. That's my maiden name or Carlin Schofield. Um, but LinkedIn and then I also, my email address is carlin, C-A-R-L-Y-N dot Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H at gmail.com. Fantastic. And if you have any comments or questions about the show or any show suggestions, which I always welcome, you can email me at tim.hicks, H-I-C-K-S, at F-I-S-Global.com. Until next time, I've been your host, Tim Hicks, with today's special guest, Carlin Schofield. Thanks for having me, Tim. Tune in next time when I will sit down with my FIS colleague, Scott Glassford, to talk about Long Duration Targeted Improvements, or LDTI. Hey, if you know, you know. And if you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to subscribe so that you never miss new episodes when they come out. Do us a favor and let your friends and colleagues know about the show. And one more thing, if you wouldn't mind, please rate and review the show so people have an easier time finding us. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.